Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans. I'll give it a rest. You're under new management. It's Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast now. Hello and welcome to the podcast. What we got this week? Well, this week we've got the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle. Uh, from far off 1915 and to help me through the pain and suffering that you'll all be suffering <laughs> I've got Gary Bain my old favourite hello Gary hello Pete how are you you old uh, bastard good lord such language uh, right today we're going to do the Battle of Nourish we've got a lot to do so we, should we yep. crack on yeah we'll get on with this today um, now so what's what's happening in early 1915 well uh the French, they got a few doubts about the British. That they were quite impressed by uh, the First Battle of Ypres. They hadn't been impressed by our performance uh, earlier in 1914. Uh, they wanted the British to take over more of the front line um, uh, so that they could get on with their own offensives. But in the end, Sir John French, who's the British Commander-in-Chief of the BEF, he, he's pretty willing to get involved, isn't he, Gary? He is, and it, ultimately this leads to the, the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle that we're going to talk about, Pete. Yeah. Now that 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 had been uh, captured from uh, from the British in October 1914, uh, uh, and it would be it would be the first major BEF attack on German entrenched positions because previous attacks had just been a couple of battalions. Uh, who's doing it? Well, there's uh, First Army's doing it. Uh, uh, that now who's in command of First Army, Gary? Who who is it? Which masked man? Well, it's under one of our favourites, but it's under General Sir Douglas Haig. And what does the First Army consist of at that time? Well, it's uh, it's the Fourth Corps and the Indian Corps, largely at that time, Pete. Now, interestingly, there's a, a brigade in the the uh, Indian Corps which is selected for part of the initial salutes under the uh, under the command of uh, Brigadier General Charles Blackadder. Could that be him? Could it be Could him? It? I think it? it's actually Blackadder, but. It, it, it's only got one D in, hasn't it? It did, but it didn't work if I said black either. Now, why why are they keen to, to attack? Well, the Germans have uh, weakened the Western Front. They've sent a lot of divisions out to, to the Eastern Front to face the, those Russians who are uh, now fighting. Oh, the Eastern Front's boiling up, really. 
And uh, so uh, it's going to be a joint offensive originally, but with the French. But the French drop out because they're already overcommitted. They've been attacking in Artois and Champagne. But the British decide to carry on regardless. Oh, those carry-on films were excellent, weren't they? Which is your favourite, Gary? Carry on regardless. I think that's the worst, personally. I never really liked that one. Anyway, uh, so uh, the... Uh, uh, it, they get ready for the attack. Now, the, we'll put a map up, or Gary will. I think this could be a job for Gary this this time. Uh, we'll put a map of uh, of Nerve Chappelle up. There's a salient round Nerve Chappelle. And Haig, in charge of First Army, calls for converging attacks. So the 4th Corps, commanded by Lieutenant General Sir Henry Rawlinson, another one we come across a lot, uh, and the Indian Corps, commanded by Lieutenant General Sir James Wilcox. One of your favourites, I believe. Gary. You know how to pronounce that, then. I better get that one right. Yeah. It'll be trouble at mill. Um, uh, anyway, the, the, the idea is to use massed artillery. They've got a frontage of just 2,000 yards, which is it really isn't very far, is it? Compare it, for instance, with the Somme, 25,000 yards. And they're going to seize the village, take up defensive positions, and then they, they, they launch more attacks, uh, hopefully pushing forward to take the Albers Ridge. Uh, which I think you said was... It's about four kilometres uh, to the northeast, Pete. So, three miles? About four kilometres. <laughs> Swine. I'm old-fashioned. Uh, now, um, so there, so that's, that's the object. And, and, and Ober's Ridge is, is a long-standing objective throughout 15. Now, they've only got enough ammunition, artillery ammunition, for three or four days of serious operations. That's all they've got, Gary. Uh, and uh, so they've got contingency plans where they'd stop at various places if they don't get to the Alvarez Ridge. Uh, this is something people don't understand, that in, in an offensive, you have contingency plans. Uh, what, what, how would you define the approach Haig takes? Well, it's, it's broadly collegiate. He, he consults experts, and he has a number of conferences with uh, his commanders and senior staff charged with carrying out the attack. Um, so his subordinates and their staff officers were expected to work out the, the details, but there's no doubt that Hay uh, provided insightful guidance. Yeah, to sum up their guidance, he said, well, he's, 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 he's largely, he works out how to get the troops forward uh, so that people don't notice what's happening. He, they discuss what they're going to do about their own wire obstacles. Uh, he, uh, the, the importance of maps will come back to because this is the first time they use the Royal Flying Corps. Uh, they, they work a lot on how to destroy the barbed wire. They actually work it through and come out with shrapnel. Uh, they're going to secretly bring up their gun, register targets. Uh, that's, uh, so they practice firing to make sure they can hit it and then they stop. So okay. how do they do that without the Germans actually noticing, Pete? The, the Germans usually do notice if you register. That's why the great advantage of, uh, of uh, shooting off the map. But the maps aren't accurate enough, are they? So they can't. Uh, they 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 want to locate the Maxim machine guns. They're going to use. Uh, they're going to have follow up artillery. They're using the mountain uh, artillery and machine guns to follow up the assault. Uh, they're going to think about mines and they're going to use saps uh, and they're going to use trench mortars. It's all new, new, exciting stuff. He really is thinking through, and he's learnt from the French. I think people always forget that the French have been battering buggery out of the Germans in the Champagne and Artois, and people like Haig have been watching what's going on. So, uh, so they're they're all doing that. Uh, uh, the, the, but the bombardment is key, isn't it? Wouldn't you say, Gary? Um, what's the role of the bombardment in this offensive? The problems, uh, if you mentioned, for example, barbed wire. 
Um, so you, you, you've got to think about, um, you know, how are you going to do that? They've, they've practiced with shrapnel and uh, uh, high explosives. And uh, it, you've got to take care over the troops. One thing you didn't mention was the, the care of, of the lives. You know, he is thinking about how to maintain the lives and how artillery can help him. That that yeah. So he's got to, the, the artillery's got to destroy the uh, the German trenches. Uh, well, it's the heart of his plans, isn't it? Let's face it. Yeah. They're now they're uh, they're basically often barricade trenches because why 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 are they uh, why are they normal trenches, Gary? Uh, because you're up against the Germans, Pete. And uh, no, no, it's <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, and they you know they know what to expect. They man in the barricades. Oh, Gary, 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 <laughs> Gary, Gary, Gary. It's because if you dig in in that area of France, you get up to your arse in water. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> in, you were. in some cases, they've had to use sandbags as well because of the, uh, yeah, the water building them up. the area to build them up, yeah. Now, so they're going to smash them down. They're going to kill the defending garrison. That's a bit harsh, isn't it? Oh, I suppose they are at war. Destroy any machine guns. Uh, and then there'd also be a, a defensive wall, a curtain, no no less, of shells to prevent German reinforcements moving forward. We'll see how well that works. Uh, and and how are they going to achieve that? Well, you've got to concentrate most of the British batteries on the Western Front in the Neuve-Chapelle area. Um, you know, you've mentioned uh, how it's quite a small uh, frontage, but... Um, don't forget, this is in 1915, Pete. So not only have you got a lack of guns, you've got a lack of shells as well. That's right. So they bring up the guns. They try and register without the Germans noticing. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, but uh, they also draw up a firing programme for each gun. This is all quite new, really. Uh, they, they switch your targets, they time everything, uh, number of rounds to be fired, when to be fired. That sounds and, and, uh, really complex. Yeah, how do you think that compares to something in 1917 or 1918? It just doesn't <laughs> compare, does it, really? Um, uh, it, that, that's going to grow out of all recognition. But that, that's a start. For At the time, everyone was going, oh, this is so complex, my head's exploding. And there were, there were artillery officers with their heads exploding all over the place. Now, uh, let's talk. You, you raised it, and I've raised it, so we both raised it. Let's actually f- talk about it now. What about barbed wire? So why don't they just blow it up with high explosive? If they had some high explosive shells, mind you, which is, in itself is a separate issue. Why why, uh, why don't they just blow it up, Gary? Well, they tried that, hadn't they? And, and they'd been experimenting. And what happens if you blow something up, Pete? It comes down again. Is it like what goes up must come down? Yeah, so whilst it disturbed the, uh, the barbed wire, it didn't actually cut it. Uh, they found that shrapnel did, albeit that... Uh, uh, it would be small areas of, of uh, barbed wire. So so they were largely reliant on shrapnel dealing with the barbed wire. And good gunners who could time the, the, the fuse detonation so that the shrapnel exploded in the right place because it's very dependent on skill, isn't it? Yeah, they had, a, they had a huge debate, for example, about how long the initial bombardment should be. You know, should it be a sustained bombardment over a period of time or a short hurricane bombardment? Um, you know, just to... to surprise the Germans basically and again that's important of the future isn't it they're experimenting I I, I, I used to we always used to when I was at, uh, at university and I expect when you were in the army we always used to try and use the word dichotomy uh, <laughs> <laughs> and there is a dichotomy here if you have a short bombardment 
it might not destroy the target. But if you have a long bombardment, the Germans know you're coming. Uh, and there is, there is, there is a problem here. Uh, and it comes to it's 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 a dichotomy destruction and uh, suppression and surprise. It's all anyway. Uh, that's in 1915. Practical considerations, I think. The boss, uh, they need a, a bombardment. They work out of two and a half hours, but they haven't got the shells, and and and, and they decide they can make do with a hurricane bombardment of 35 minutes. And this is very like the bombardments in 1918. It's a quick, powerful bombardment. And that would allow the 18-pounder field guns to clear the wire while the 4.5 howitzers and, <laughs> I say heavy artillery, but whatever heavy artillery they managed to scrape together, uh, that could have destroyed the breastwork trenches. That's the plan. Uh, now, you've got to remember, in those days, this isn't the Somme trenches. This is 1915 trenches. So there's only a, a couple of lines at best. There's not a lot there, and a lot of them are just breastwork. Then it's it, They're thin defences. So what does the First Army get together? How many guns are we talking about? Well, they managed to uh, get together, rather surreptitiously, 282 field guns and howitzers, but they had an additional 36 heavier pieces. Um, now, that think about this, Pete. That's amounting to one gun per six yards of front, which would really be equal throughout the rest of the war. And that... Uh, so, or even the great bombardment. So you've got to remember that that's even with uh, with uh, the, the, in later in the war, you've got separate trench systems to think about. So this is a, a super powerful effort. Uh, they've got all the ammunition they can get together. Uh, what have the Germans got? I expect they've got hundreds of guns in that 2,000 yards of front. Do you know what, Pete? I don't know. I think they, they've got very few. I think it's it's about 24 field and 36 heavy guns. Uh, interesting the balance of guns again there showing that the germans have more heavy guns generally it's it's interesting there um so so uh so uh the the, the british have 36 of the the heavy guns are charged with uh dealing with the german guns counter battery fire this is nowhere near adequate and and uh the the, the german heavy guns back on the, the albers ridge uh they're, uh, they're, they're, they're not really taken into consideration. What would you... This battle's interesting for me, tactically, because it's the first one, isn't it, Gary, where, where um, they, it's the first time you, you add the Royal Flying Corps aircraft to the traditional mix of uh, infantry, cavalry, artillery, Royal Engineers, all the rest of it that's been there for eons. We, we've done a podcast about uh, the... Uh... The Royal Flying Corps in 1914, they, they were there, Pete. They've been there since the beginning of the war doing uh, various tasks. But you're right, it's the first time that it's a considered addition. Um, yeah, it's coming, to a fruition. it's coming to a fruition. So the cameras are now allowing, uh, in particular, well, you can listen to the 14 and 15 podcasts, really, uh, but they get, they get a photographic map which they use to produce a paper map for, for, uh, for the whole of the area on a scale of one to 8,000. Uh, and, and this is a huge advance. Uh, and, uh, and also, they're, they're, they're helping with uh, artillery observation. That's all we'll say, and this is crucial. And let's go on to how it's crucial. So very early on in the planning, you said, you said Haig brings in experts. He brings in Lieutenant Colonel Hugh Trenchard. Uh, he's the commander of First Wing Royal Flying Corps. First Wing is First Armies. And uh, they have a brief meeting on 16th of February, so a month before the attack on, uh, in March. And, and, and I think I'm going to read this, and he's flattered, isn't he, Trenchard? So here we go. This is Trenchard. You can guess who Trenchard's going to be played by. 
Me. Hey, this was the first time I'd, I'd ever seen Haig. I, I was very nervous beforehand, as I'd always heard that he was very reserved, austere, severe, and that he did not believe in a great deal in the air. <laughs> he ordered me to go round to his headquarters about five o'clock in the evening and ask me about the use of aircraft in battle. I tried to explain what I thought they would do in future besides reconnaissance work. Ha, 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 machines would have to fight in the air against German machines and how we should have to develop machine gun and bombs. Hey, he was interested. Then he said he was going to tell me something that only three or four people in the world yet knew. In March, somewhere in the vicinity of Merville and Neuve-Chapelle, we were to launch an attack. On the Germans! I was not to tell anybody. He asked, What will you be able to do? Oh, he was German. <laughs> I, I explained rather badly about artillery observation reported to gun batteries by Morse and signal lamps and about our early effort to get wireless going. On the map I showed him the position of my squadrons and said what their several tasks could be. When I'd finished, he said, well, Chad, I shall expect you. I can't change his accent how it started. I shall expect you to tell me before the attack whether you can fly. Because on your being able to observe for the artillery and carry out reconnaissance, the battle will partly depend. <laughs> if you can't fly because of the weather, I shall probably put off the attack. Right, several things. <laughs> that was Trenchard quoting Haig. So you could have done it in the Trenchard voice, which is the same as every other officer's voice, I hasten to add. But no, you did it as a German. It was a mistake. Yes. I've been re I've been reading social media. Apparently, Haig wasn't nice. He was a butcher and a bungler, mm. secretly German, and a lot of other things. What does what what does Haig say about it in real life? <laughs> His account's somewhat different. Uh, General Sir Douglas Haig, HQ First Army. I told him the plan and asked for his proposals as to disposal of aeroplanes for reconnaissance and also for artillery observation. That's not quite the same. No, but uh, a little bit later, his actions showed he'd actually been listening and paying close attention because on the 22nd of February, he noted, at 10am, I motored to Merville and held conference there regarding plans for offensive. I went into the plans sent in at some length and insisted on the necessity of methodical preparation, and that every individual man should know exactly what his task was, thanks to the wonderful map of enemy's trenches which we now had as a result of airplane reconnaissance, it was now possible to make our plans very carefully beforehand. Now that's that. That's uh, yeah. He, 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 so it's a, a combination of flattering and uh, showing an interest. Uh, 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 but he's taking he is taking a, a, an interest. And in fact, I would say that it's the start of a, 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 a war long association between the two. And as each is promoted, Trent, well, as Haig's promoted, Trenchard basically goes with him. Uh, it's, it goes all the way through, because let's be honest. The RFC is the handmaiden, the handmaiden, Gary, attending to its every needs of the artillery. You'd like a handmaiden? We've well, got Janet. That'll do. Probably more than enough for you, especially at your time in life. Right, so Haig also is paying a lot of attention 
to the infantry assault, is there? Obviously he is, because that's still at the centre of everything. The artillery will smash the way for the infantry, but the infantry have to do well as well. Careful briefing with these aerial photographs, sketch maps. What are they basically trying to do? So, so the infantry do what? So they, they know what? Well, they know where they are uh, and, and what... And you know, and what lay ahead of them? It's almost like the role of cavalry, um, so that they're not going blindly uh, into the German lines. And what sort of preparations are they having to make? Is is it just the infantry turn up and go over the top? No, they've got to they've got to do things like improve the the existing communication trenches, and they've got to dig specially constructed assembly trenches because they've got to form up somewhere and the cover, Peter, haven't they? Uh, and that takes space, doesn't it? Because it's thousands. When thousands of men are going over, they need space. So it's a lot of digging. Uh, now the the moment of attack is going to be uh, five minutes past eight. But but Hager he wants them to advance as quickly as possible to get the maximum benefit from the chaos and the destruction, panic caused by the bombardment. Uh, uh, and as we mentioned, he's also going to rush forward machine guns and mountain guns to help sort of consolidate any anticipated gains. That's all. Consolidation is crucially important. Why is it crucially important against the Germans? What do the Germans always do? Well, they always counterattack, don't they, Peter? At some point, you should expect a counterattack. A local counterattack and then a considered uh, unorganised counterattack by the reserves. Uh, so they're going to secure the German front line and then they're going to throw through the assault into the village of Neuve-Chapelle about 8.35 and then occupy an old line of British trenches named after someone very dear to your heart. Who was that? They're known as the Janet Trenches. <laughs> yes. No, it's the Smith-Dorian line, Pete. Oh, silly old me. Uh, so there's a lot of planning going on. Not everything works, but then does everything work in warfare, Gary? Does everything you plan go ahead according to it? Well, does everything work in life, Pete? Never, never mind just war. Not in mine. No. Things are going quite well today because I've managed not to, to cue a, a song. So let's just let's just look on the bright side. <laughs> Always look oh, on the bright God. side of life. <laughs> I can't whistle, Gary. I'm doing this. Right. Um, so the barrage, what time does it start then? It starts at uh, 7.30 in the morning of the 10th of March, 1915. It's my son's birthday. Oh, how lovely. You you like your son, don't you? Which son, by the way, John or Jack? I'm not going to say on the basis that I may incriminate myself. Right. Now, half the 18-pounders, they're thrashing the German barbed wire with shrapnel fire. Everybody else is uh, is, is combining to, to flay the German trenches. Uh, now, uh, let, let's uh, let's have a look at uh, the, the, uh, 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 a forward observ- observation officer, and we're going to look at 2nd Lieutenant Charles Heath. He's with 2nd Siege Battery. What does he say about being in an OP post, observation post, in the front line during this bombardment, Gary? I was posted to an observation post in a place called Port Arthur, a projection of the front line towards the German line. From there, you could see the German line very easily. We were very close to the German front line, under 100 yards. It was known that as soon as we started our bombardment of the German line, a number of shells would probably fall in our own lines. The captain, a very experienced men-man, told the Major, who wasn't so experienced, that unless I had cover from behind, we'd all be soon killed by the shrapnel shells bursting short. He insisted that we get a fatigue party up from the battery a day or two before and build head cover over this little place with sandbags where I would be with my two signallers, 
Undoubtedly, his doing that saved our lives. Now, the shrapnel fire had to work. It had to cut the barbed wire, didn't it? It, 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 it? This is why they couldn't use high explosive. It would go up, and when it came down, it'd still be an obstacle. And uh, now, this is 2nd Lieutenant John Wedderburn Maxwell, 5th Battery, 45th Brigade Royal Field Artillery. And he says, our guns are very close up because you wanted to have a flat trajectory to cut the wire. I was with the guns, first of all, very close up and very concentrated all together with another battery just over our heads and another battery just in front. A tremendous rate of fire. I should think probably 300 to 400 rounds a gun to blast the wire. So he hadn't been on the universal uh, officer uh, accent course yet. No, he uh, he was a young lad. He would go and yeah, he'd get fully sorted out. <laughs> now, the, the 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 if you're aiming at the uh, the the front wire, uh, the front line, it's almost easier because they're just layered sandbags, muck, dirt, earth, and 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 the the high explosive. What what effect do you think high explosive ba- uh, shells have on breastwork trenches? Well, it basically blows it apart. Ooh, that's what they meant it to do, isn't it? Yeah. Um, um, and this barrage, t- by weight of shell per yard, this is the heaviest barrage that would be fired until 1970. Now, that's not my statistic. As you know, Gary, statistics are not my strong point. But that is a telling statistic. And if I was a good historian, I'd tell you where I got it from. But I can't remember. Yeah, there are a number of things that are not your strong point, Pete. Dates. <laughs> statistics. Staying on... <laughs> Staying on track. Well, I feel that you, Gary, may have led us off a little into my my foibles. I like to call them foibles. Anyway, this is 2nd Lieutenant (laughs) Charles Heath again of the 2nd Siege Battery. And he says, We were just north of the Labassi Road, the right-hand area of where my battery was firing. They were firing to the north of that along the Bosch Front Trench. That was where I was concerned in watching to see that no shell dropped back enough to hit our own lines. If that happened, I would send a correction down. Add 100 to the number 3 gun or number 4 gun and get up away from our own line and onto the Bosch line. All along the line, the front line Germans were being bombarded to the left and the right of me. So, they do that, then after 10 minutes, the field artillery moved a barrage uh, to, to a line east of Neuve-Chapelle uh, to prevent either the escape or reinforcement by German reserves moving up. Get, by the, you know, the, the, uh, and what do the infantry think? They're watching this. What do the, I insist on a Scottish accent for this. This is, uh, this is somebody watching, and it's Lance Corporal William Andrews. Aye. A fourth Black Watch, i.e. Borelli uh, Brigade. So he's actually with the... I want to make this clear. He's part of the 7th Meerut Division. He, they're, they're the British Battalion in the uh, in, in in the Indian Corps, uh, or Indian that Indian Division. So what does what does uh, what does he say? What does William Andrews say? He's Black Watch, so he's from Edinburgh. Oh, it's a, so it's just usual accent. Yeah. The noise almost split our numbed wits. As the shells went over our heads, we grew more and more excited. We could not hear each other. Shots from the 18-pounders were screaming not far over our heads, and much higher up, higher than the highest mountain of Europe, high explosives from the 15-inch howitzers were rushing like express trains. After a while, after a while, we could trace the different sounds. There was no difficulty in making out the German trenches, 
they had become long clouds of smoke and dust, flashing continuously with shell bursts and with enormous masses of trench material and bodies sailing high above the smoke cloud. The purely physical effect on us was one of extreme exhilaration. We could have laughed and cried with excitement. We thought that bombardment was winning the war before our eyes. Incredible that the men in the German front line could have escaped. We felt sure we were going to pour through the gap. Now, um, in reality, uh, not all the wire is cut. Uh, and, and actually, to hit a narrow trench line is quite, quite difficult. And always, uh, I'd say they flatter to deceive, if, if you see what I mean. Uh, so it's not actually quite as bad as you think now the uh, let's look at uh, now we've managed to find uh, a couple of indian quotes from this and these, these i'd like to reference now where we got them from it's from the battle of nerve chapelle britain's forgotten offensive of 1915 i'll guarantee now the publishers put that in uh and this is by paul kendall uh and uh, but we found a couple of quotes in there and this is subadir kedar singh rawat of second 39th garwal rifles garwal brigade Meerut division and he says this, uh, I'm not going to do that awful Spike Milligan pretend Indian accent that they used to do. I'm just going to read it as straight as I can. During our bombardment and the shelling of, of our position by the enemy, the Indian soldiers remained silently undercover. Suddenly the officer pocketed his, his, pocketed his voice. The 35 minutes had expired. That's how long the bombardment was. And he cried in English, waving his revolver. All orders are given to the natives in English. <laughs> Advance! Like all the other native officers, I, he was a subadier, remember, I carried a, a rifle in addition to my revolver. At the order to advance, the men, ordered, the men murmured the prayer, Jai Budra Nath Kejal. What does that mean, Gary? Uh, I think it's, uh, it, you're going to go on to explain it, Pete, to be honest. <laughs> I repeated it as they emerged into the open. It is a supplication to, to the deity. To this effect, I am fighting for my king. I'm surprised you didn't know that. Help me and, if possible, save my life. <laughs> Sorry. Even the white officers, of whom there were two, the captain and lieutenant, paused to utter this prayer. That's quite nice. I like that. Yeah, the reason I didn't explain it, Pete, is it would have taken something away from the quote. I know. I'm just being stupid. I do apologise. I apologise unreservedly. Oh, I accept it magnanimously. Oh, that's really good. It's as if we're getting on well. If what happens? What happens, Gary, if the barbed wire isn't cut? Well, because the infantry then get caught in the open, and, and as we mentioned before, uh, they're going to come under machine gun fire and artillery fire. And uh, there's that horrific term, isn't there, hanging on the old barbed wire, and that would come to have a terrible terrible resonance it did now who the, the, the two battalions really suffer and this is often all you ever seem to hear about in this battle the second cameronians and the second middlesex regiment they're both in 23rd brigade 8th division now why do they suffer so badly gary it's it's because two heavy howitzer batteries don't get into the line in time they're held up by life let's call it uh um, uh, and and uh, the result is they really suffer badly. Now, uh, so so the, this is Lieutenant Malcolm Kennedy of Second Cameronians, uh, Scottish Rifles to you and me. Uh, as I say, Twenty Third Brigade. What does he say? What does Malcolm say? Almost before I had time to realise it, I found myself up against the German wire. It was bared and twisted and almost unbroken. 
for the bombardment had proved ineffective at that particular point. Of how we got through that wire, I have no clear idea. I have a vague recollection of tearing at it with my naked hands and with the help of one of my corporals, dragging away the remains of a chevaux de frie, while a German fired at us at a range of only four or five yards and misses us both. After that, the fellow must have bolted, as I remember throwing myself through the remaining strands of wire. That's a, a nice quote, a ni- nice accent as well. The chevaux de frise uh, a sort of uh, 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 portable barrier, isn't it? It's often spikes and wrapped in barbed wire and stuff like That's that. That's it. Now, uh, another quote uh, comes from uh, Sergeant William Siddons of the 2nd Middlesex Regiment, same brigade. And he says, uh, oh, Middlesex, right, Cockney. Oh, God, you should have done this one. Just listen to me. No, that's Australia. Oh, I'm just going to read it straight. <laughs> the fighting at Clash Quarters was <laughs> Australian. <laughs> was terrific. Our men fought like demons, possessed, and they were met by a determined enemy. But our bombardment had shattered the nerves of many of them, and we gave them a real taste of what can be done by roused British soldiers. Crikey. Of course, we lost a great many men. But the slaughter amongst the Germans was awful. The enemy's trenches presented a horrible spectacle and dead and dying men lay all around us. Um, now, the thing is, they had it really tough, those battalions, and a lot of books concentrate on them. But in actual fact, most of it went well. Five of the eight assault battalions took their objectives and they advanced some 1,200 yards with minimal... Well, what's that in uh, metres, Gary? Uh, it's about... Um... 1100 I think <laughs> there were minimal losses and they take Nerve Chappelle and they take what else do they take Gary Something they, they take to... the Smith Dorian line I mean they probably is achieved use... is that useful yeah I mean they probably achieved the majority of their tactical objectives but strategically it's not that useful I'm not sure if the it's they're both tactical if you see what I mean. Yeah, but I'm thinking about their their strategic objective as stated earlier is taking the Obers um I think that's bridge. a tactical objective as well. Well I disagree with you. Now this is Private H uh Mackin of the Link the second Lincolnshire Regiment, twenty fifth Brigade, eighth division. I have no idea what accent they have in Lincolnshire. With bayonets fixed, the air company of our battalion rushed across 80 yards of open ground to the first German trench. They were so Lancashire, apparently. <laughs> they were so thin as scarcely to maintain the combat when they got there. Our company B quickly followed and the Germans, overwhelmed, fled. We passed the first German trench full of wounded and dead, ours and the enemy's. The enemy had no time to occupy the second trench and we rushed them beyond the third, which last we occupied. No sooner had we stationed ourselves than the Irish rifles scrambled over us and gave further pursuit. Now, that means they'd taken uh, the, the Nerve Chappelle and the Smith Dorian line. That, that was flooded. They got them by nine o'clock. So, you know, this is quick, quick progress. Now, this is Private A. Allen of the 2nd Lincolnshire Regiment, 25th Brigade. Uh, and, 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 I'm afraid this is reprehensible. No funny accents, because this is terrible behaviour. There are reasons for it, but but it's not an excuse. Uh, And Alan says this. Whenever we got amongst them, they held up their hands and cried out in English, Mercy, mercy, with with yells of Mons and Scarborough. That's because of the 
German bombardment just a week or two before, well, a month or two before. However, our boys rushed into them and the slaughter only ceased when the order was given to take them prisoner. Over 300 Germans were captured at this point. That, But before that, they'd been killing them out of hand. This is this is not, not on, really. Uh, and there's generally terrible scenes in, in the German trenches. And you've got a description from rifleman Amal Singh Rawat. Uh, again, 2nd, 39th uh, Garwal Rifles. Another Sikh, I think you said, off tape he was. Yeah. So what did he say? So many men were killed and wounded that they could not be counted. And of the Germans, the number of casualties is beyond calculation. When we reached their trenches, we used the bayonet and the cookery, and blood was shed so freely that we could not recognise each other's faces. The whole ground was covered with blood. There were heaps of men's heads, and some soldiers were without legs, others had been cut in two, some without hands, and others without eyes. The scene was indescribable. If I get killed, it does not matter. When so many of my brethren have been slain, it would not matter about me. Wow. Um, uh, so that's a combined effect of the uh, the bayonet, the cookery, and of course, uh, most of the damage would have been done by the, the, the artillery. Uh, and the, now, they'd broken the line altogether on a 4,000-yard front, which seems different from the 2,000-yard At the start, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll glide past that. From Moated Grange to uh, in the north, and if you look on your map, you'll see that, to the Port Arthur salient, where they had trouble, by the way. But never mind, we haven't got time for detail. Uh, by 10 o'clock, they'd, they'd got the village of Nerve Chappelle. They got uh, 1,200 yards, and they gained the Smith-Dorian line. So all that was in thing. Now, a lot of the battalions are almost unscathed. Uh, and what had been demonstrated is that their tactics could break the German lines. Now, what's the remaining question, though, Gary? What... Uh, for you, the strategic, for me, the higher tactical objective. Uh, what, 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 what hasn't been decided? Well, could they break through to the uh, the uplands of the Obers Ridge and beyond? Uplands. Pay? Have you been there? It's yeah, it's, it's, it's a pimple, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's a sort of low pimple. Yes, yeah, it's a stretch. Of, uh, it's a sort of thing you drive over and don't notice. Oops. Now, um, but it is now the what, heights in the area. That's the point. It is. Oh, from there, you can see down, and you can see what's happening. Um, it's relative height, isn't it? So um, I'm relatively taller than you. You are relatively. Now, uh, then things start to go wrong. Now, why does it go wrong? Well, let's have some, let's do our brainstorming. So give me a reason. What's going wrong? Well, they've got to winkle out pockets of German resistance because they don't just all give up and it's proving difficult to, to organise and, and actually very costly. Uh, in particular, the 200 yards of trench known as Port Arthur was causing a huge delay to the Indian Corps, as you mentioned earlier. All right. Um, would Now, I mentioned the Smith-Dorian line was waterlogged. Would that, would that be Well, you a, can't a, use a it then, can you? Just oh, can't no. be used. Yeah, it can't be. It's, so, it's no so, good. So you've got to dig a new one. Uh, or or, or matter. Uh, do you think the, 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 the troops had maintained their order amidst all this uh, fighting and slaughter and the rest of it? No, they, there's, you know, they're going to be in a state of total confusion, aren't they? They're, they're not used to the headlong stresses of combat. And uh, a lot of them are, are not going to be capable of, of thinking clearly. You know, the officers are well briefed, but are the men. And, uh, and of course, uh, what could have happened to the officers and NCOs? Well, as I mentioned, they've been uh, well briefed. But you know, once you start taking casualties, and the casualties were severe, it could leave an NCO in command and... It, and 
with li- very little clue as to what was meant to be happening. And the NCOs could get killed as well, of course. Yeah. So everybody's uh, everybody's a bit. Uh, yeah, it's going. To... Um, what about communications? Uh, I presume they were able to report easily back to, uh, to to headquarters what was happening. Exactly what was happening. Would that be the case? Well, you've got to think about what the Germans are doing. So the communications, in essence, fall apart under German shell fire. And and this is despite the best efforts to bury the telephone lines. You know, Rawlinson had practically no idea at all of what was happening. He was in charge of fourth corps, and and Haig presumably the same, and Wilcox, uh, the, uh, the the Indian corps commander. Uh, now, uh, just as an idea, this is a quote from Second Lieutenant John Wedderburn Maxwell again, and he sent forward to join the infantry in a forward OP, a makeshift forward OP, and this gives an idea of what it's like. Uh, this is uh, so. This is John Wedderburn Maxwell. Tim Tim Thackeray said, "You've got to go up. Dotty has been killed." Dutty Donaldson, the old dugout, a dear old boy, he was killed. I had to go up and take his place for the infantry, both supporting them with the fire they wanted, protecting them against the German counterattacks, and seeing what was happening on the rest of the front. I went up. It was rather difficult. You can imagine the place was quite devastated. Firing going on all around. Some rifle fire, fire a great deal of machine gun fire. All I had to go on with was a signaller who'd just come back to help guide me to, to, to where he'd been. I wanted to pick up the story from the infantry you found yourself among, and it wasn't a very wholesome place. I was sitting just like we are here, and all of a sudden my little signaller boy, very young, about my age, 20, he was suddenly flat, dead. You couldn't dig in. They had these silly little entrenching tools, but you couldn't dig a good deal of earth in front of you to protect you from a rifle bullet. I moved along the front and met a great friend from the third battery called Alan Hornby. He was at the shop with me. That means, uh, oh God, I forgot the name, uh, uh, Woolwich. Woolwich. With me, Alan and I sat down and watched these heavy shells coming over from the Germans. I'd woken up then to the fact that this was a very serious business. You had these things coming. You'd hear that coming. You saw a black thing hurtle to the ground and then a huge flame of black smoke. The height of these trees. Later, I was up with the jocks, the Cameronians. Uh, we repelled several counterattacks with SOS fire. Every time our, our, our infantry moved forward, you had to adjust your SOS protection. I was doing the work for six guns. The jocks found the Germans killing their prisoners or something. Anyway, they absolutely got their wreck out, and I know they really murdered everything they could get hold of. It was very savage. So even amidst, it's just chaos as people misbehaving there's, there's there's death and mayhem all around the communicate nobody knows what's happening the communications have gone command and control has gone and that when you were in the army you know what's important command and control at all times yeah and it's interesting to note that lieutenant normal donaldson dotty the old boy that was mentioned at the start of that he was just 36 years old Pete. that's uh half my age Yes, right. Now, uh, so what What confusion means delay and uh, delay minutes turn into hours. And you've got Generals Wilcox, Indian Corps, Rawlinson, 4th Corps. They're struggling to get a grip on the situation, aren't they? Um, and what, what, what does that mean? What does that 
what does the fact they don't know what's happening, they can't control the infantry, they can't control the, uh, the guns, what does that mean for the next stage of the advance? Well, they can't order the next stage of the advance until they know that all the original objectives have been secured. And every minute that passes the, uh, is exploited by the Germans to reorganise and move up their reserves, making it much more difficult. And Germans, and 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 you're going to be uh, oh, you could say this using your uh, your German experience, or your reading body. it, Weisfeldwebel. That's very good. Who is he? Weisfeldwebel Brockman of the Fifteenth Infantry Regiment, and he's he says, German. He's German, and he says, "Shells were landing with an extraordinary racket on the village." Alarm! Alarm! The Tommies had launched an attack. Everyone was gathered together, including the sick. Then we forced march to brigade headquarters. The field kitchens arrived, steaming away. So food and iron rations were distributed. Everyone ate his fill and crammed his pouches to capacity. We topped up with ammunition from an ammunition wagon and set off, commanded by Major Stripperman with each man carrying two extra belts of ammunition round his neck and singing, We're not afraid, We're not afraid of, of, of the thunder of the, the guns. <laughs> yes. We came under shell fire at Hurley's for the first time, and from then on, it was bloody awkward. Towards the close of day, we arrived, accompanied by the crack of bullets and casualties everywhere, night fell. At the entrance to the village, near the Lays Brook, we dug in, a mere 100 metres from a farm occupied by the Tommies. The road was barricaded, whilst off to the left, second company also dug in. Each man dug a small trench as best he could. Now, he worked in London for a period before the war, about two or three years. So he just had a little tinge. So of he had a... a little tinge of a German accent, yes. Uh, now, uh, both Gary and I would like to, again, pay tribute to where we got these uh, quotes from. And this is from Jack Sheldon, one of our best chums. Uh, and this is from the German Army on the Western Front, 1915. Jack Sheldon is uh, uh, he's like a sort of saint for historians because all us historians who can't read German, he provides the raw material for and, 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 and spoon-feeds it to us. He does so all the hard can... work, doesn't he? And he's done an he, awful he does... lot of it. He's great. So buy his books, support his uh, burgeoning career. Right. Uh, now, uh, so what what does it mean if the the whole point about the uh, Nerve Chappelle was it was a narrow front attack? Now, what's the problem with a narrow front attack, Gary? Well, because it, it's so narrow, the Germans can actually plug the gaps that you're creating. So like the boy with with a dyke? Yeah, or me at that museum where I put my finger in the hole in the side of the boat. I'll put that picture up. It's always a favourite. Yes, I think you were there demonstrating why that boat had sunk and others hadn't. <laughs> um, but, uh, yes, if it's a narrow gap, then it's easy to plug. Um, so what do they do? Overnight, they dig a new uh, defence line. They bring up the infantry. We've just heard one quote from And what else do they bring up? Well, they bring up more artillery batteries. And uh, what dominates a battlefield? Artillery. Uh, so, now, over the net, we're, we're cutting out the story in a sense now. The renewed British attacks are made, but the impetus has gone. The Germans have closed the gap. And uh, any more advances? Not really. Do you think, Gary? What do you no, think? No, I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty much... 
the, the main concentration then is defending what they what they had from the German counterattacks. Right. Now, this is uh, the next quote uh, is, is again from Weisfeldwebel. Uh, Weisfeldwebel. Uh, Brockman. And um, so so here. So tell 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 us about this, uh, that, that they're, they're just about to attack and then it's cancer, all sorts of things going on. So so tell us what happens. When it became light, a hellish rate of fire began. However, it cannot be compared with that which we experienced later on the Somme or at Chavignon. One sulphur shell after another sent pillars of yellow smoke skywards. In between, incendiary rounds smashed down. Covering the area with black clouds and over it all came the sound of machine guns firing. A row of burning houses cast a flickering light over everything, casting an image which was at the same time both fascinating and appalling. Over our heads at one point circled a German airman. It was Lieutenant Max Immelmann, the Eagle of Lille. Hang oh. on, how does he know that? Yeah, uh, he, probably, he must have had a big He must have had a big sign. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was Lieutenant Max Immelmann, the Eagle of Lille, who was surrounded by white clouds of bursting shrapnel. The enemy launched attacks several times, but wherever their lines appeared, we shot them up. A number of Tommies tried to take cover behind this wall. Very quickly, it was holed like a sieve. Our ranks were thinned too. Bavarians, Hessians and Saxons came pouring in during the night. The plan was to assault Nerve Chapelle in the early dawn, but our company was scattered to the four winds and torn apart. Now, that what's happening is uh, they're trying to counterattack. They, they they make some local counterattacks, but when the the main reserves, the Bavarians, Hessians, and Saxons, when they arrive, they don't. They 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 they're held. They can't they can't get it together. So they cannot take back uh, Nerve Chapelle. But uh, can the British take Obers Ridge? No, no. So that's and gone. even if they had, the Germans would have kicked them off, wouldn't they? I think so. I do actually, because the, the they would have had uh, three. Uh, what was it you said? Five kilometer. Uh, four kilometers. Three, four kilometers behind. Uh, uh, what's the What's the cost? By the time the battle was over, the first army suffered eleven thousand six hundred and fifty-two casualties, and the German casualties are estimated to be about eight thousand. Yeah, uh, I think that figure is probably. Uh, I don't think people really know. Now, uh, now is is it a success, Gary? Well, Nerve Chappelle was a failure, isn't it? Because you, you've not attained the objectives that were declared. The at main the start. object. The yeah. main objective is Albers Ridge, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you've got the, the, the battered remnants of Nerve Chappelle and you've straightened out a, a minor salient, but, it, but it's not worth that cost, Pete. Surely. 11,652 11, casualties. There must be three or 4,000 dead in that. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, uh, no. Um, uh, was success that likely? A, a major success, taking Abbas Ridge. Was that likely? You mentioned at the start it was the first assault against prepared defences uh, that the BEF had made against the Germans. You've got the greenness, if you pardon the expression, of almost everyone involved in the offensive. Uh, so everyone, everyone's learning, are they? Yeah, it's, it's entirely new for the BEF. And, and I, I mean, everybody, everybody benefits from the experience, uh, but it's quite uh, a costly that, experience. What about the dead? I said, except it's quite a costly experience. Had you not interrupted, Pete? 
I apologise unreservedly again. I accept magnanimously again. We're doing really well at this being polite to each other, what we we talked about earlier. <laughs> What's happening? We're learning. What we learned, well, Haig's, Haig, Haig is defining almost the basic features of a British offensive for the rest of the war. And that, in turn, is based on the French experience, isn't it? It's quite, it's a remarkable start, isn't it? Guys? Yeah, but, it, but that, that's not saying that it was perfect. Are we? We're no, not no, saying no, that at no. all. No. Uh, but he's using innovatory techniques, uh, bringing in uh, um, and, and the tactics are fit for purpose in the sense of they can take the, the German front line. If, if they've got a, a front line and just a weak support trench and not much artillery support, we can take it. Is it going to stay like that, Gary? No, but, it, but it's a good start, Pete, and, and it was good for that time. I think so. Uh, the biggest problem for any aims of doing more is the problems in command and control. They just don't know what's happening. And therefore, the, 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 the whole thing falls apart after about 9 o'clock in the morning, nine ten o'clock in the morning. Now, um, after the battle, do you think they learn from it? Well, that all the generals are thinking, and one of them uh, is Lieutenant General Sir Henry Rawlinson. Now, he, he, he tries to put down what he thinks, and it, it's got a term in it that, uh, that, that is going to resonate. What, what does he say, Gary? What we want to do now is what I call bite and hold. Bite off a piece of the enemy's line, like Neuve Chapelle, and hold it against counterattack. The bite can be made without much loss, and if we choose the right place and make every preparation to put it quickly in a state of defence, there ought to be no difficulty in holding it against the enemy's counterattacks and inflicting on him at least twice the loss that we have suffered in making the bite. Now, this is something that people will always say, oh, but in 19... Why couldn't Haig understand bite and hold? Well, two things about this. Bite and hold isn't really the answer. The answer is the all-arms battle. And the second thing... Well, you tell me. What is... Why can't the British BEF do it, Gary? Why? You haven't got the artillery, and you definitely, in 1915, haven't got the shells to make bite and hold a feasible operational methodology. It just wouldn't be... Uh, practical because you just you just couldn't do it. So it's like wanting, a, say, a crossrail across London without having put in the logistical structure and and the planning, or having the money, or having the money. <laughs> yes, it, that would be it, wouldn't it? Yeah. In other words, because you want to do something doesn't mean you can. Um, and, and there was another problem, and that's almost a political problem, isn't it? Um, well, it wouldn't. It was too slow, wasn't it? It wouldn't meet the political requirements that that are imposed on Sir John French and, and frankly, his ultimate master, Joffre. Yeah, because although Joffre wasn't in command, he was he was in control, if you like, or is it the other way around? No. <laughs> anyway, Joffre is the ultimate uh, commander in chief, really, on the West Front. He's not a supreme commander, but he does have more influence by far. Um, after the battle, it was decided the frontage is too narrow. Why, why is it? I mean, because surely that was the reason they could get that barrage together, was that it was only a, a narrow frontage. But what's the problem with a narrow frontage? And we have talked about this before. We mentioned it. it you know, the grat created was far too easily plugged by the Germans. And they could shoot in from either side is, is the other point which I often raise. If, if it's a narrow gap attack, then on the edges, they could, all the, the unit's on the side. Uh, so what, so what, what, what happens for the rest of 1915 then? Well, the, the, the British generals are constantly trying to widen the front attack, but they haven't got the artillery and the shells needed to have any real chance of success. So, you know... So as they, the, uh, as they widen it, 
they need to get the same number of shells on each square yard of trench. They need, they need more, more guns and more shells. But they were using, you said, all their guns. Yeah. And they haven't got any shells. Yeah. And what happens then if the Germans dig new lines, new trench systems, new redoubts, new belts of wire? What's going to happen? Life can only get worse, Gary. As I as I said to you when we started these podcasts, Gary, I said, life can only get worse. Was I right? You were, and for a lot of men, it got a lot shorter too. Now, yeah, with your permission, Pete, I'm I'm going to finish uh, with a, a a poem that I found in in uh, Battle Lines, the Battles of French Flanders by John Cooksey and uh, Jerry Merlin. Now, this is a poem written in 1919 by a, a chap called Heathcote William Garrod. And it was published uh, as a brief poem entitled Epitaph Nerve Chapelle in his book Worms and Epitaphs, which I believe you bought. I have. uh, At great expense. Uh, Now, (laughs) this poem is described as clearly echoing Simonides' epitaph from the Spartan dead at Thermopylae and Tennyson's charge of the light brigade. So it's a huge build up. And here's the poem. Tell them at home there's nothing here to hide. We took our orders, asked no questions, died. I do like this chap. When it comes to poetry, he cracks on with it, doesn't he? Yeah, that's the sort of poetry we like, isn't it? Well, thanks, Peter. That was, uh, uh, as I said to you before, I didn't know a great deal about Neuve Chapelle beforehand, and uh, I still don't. But um, thank you for trying. (laughs) You've shared your ignorance, haven't you? Yes, widely. (laughs) Oh, whoa. All right. Cheers, Gary. Thank you very much. Cheers, Pete. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?